comments and views expressed on The Kevin Smith Show are those of the people that make them and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kevin Smith, The Kevin Smith Show, or its affiliates or sponsors. Hi, folks, and welcome to the Kevin Smith Show, whoever you are, wherever you happen to be, all around this beautiful place we call Earth. Thank you for being here at the Kevin Smith Show. I know you could be doing a million other things, but you chose to be here, and I appreciate it. I'm here because you have a right to know, and because you matter. Well, let me welcome you to uh, 2013. Yeah, I know it's the second day of 2013, but it's the first live broadcast that I've done in 2013. And, uh, you know, for New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, I did something I don't normally do. Uh, in fact, uh, very, very rarely do I ever take a holiday. But I did. And um, thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, but uh, welcome to 2013. I'm glad you made it. Uh, I'm also glad the holidays are behind us. I have been accused of being genetically uh, somehow related to uh, Mr. Scrooge. Um, and, and that, you know, there's part of what he had to say that I do agree with, or part of his attitude that I have, have to agree with. I'm not bah humbug about Christmas, and I'm not bah humbug about holidays, other than... Men, they sure get in the way of forward progress. You know, it makes you wonder. Some of these countries have, you know, like as many holidays as they have work days. And uh, it makes you wonder how in the world do they get anything done. But uh, anyway, uh, the holidays are behind us for a while. And uh, <clears throat> I view that as a wonderful thing, although I'm glad we have the holidays and uh I don't know. I, I guess I'm a little schizophrenic when it comes to holidays. Anyway, uh, here we are. It's 2013. And uh, we are now launched into a brand new Baktun. I hope you had the opportunity to spend Baktun Eve with us. Uh, because if you didn't, well, you shot your chance to celebrate Baktun for the next 394.25 years. So um, I, I am sorry, but we will not be celebrating Baktun ever again uh, in my lifetime, and uh, not in yours either. Uh, but we, we celebrated Baktun here, and then I took off for the standard holidays, uh, New Year's Eve and uh, New Year's Day. Um, we are going to be talking a little bit about December the 21st, 2012, tonight with Dr. Brooks Agnew. And we're going to be asking the question, Doomsday 2012. Okay, so what happened? And uh, he and I talked about that a little bit on the telephone. I think uh, you'll uh, enjoy what he's got to say about that. Uh, and he's not nervous about me asking uh, what happened. So this ought to be an interesting and fun time, and, and we're going to explore some other things. 
Later in the show, for those of you who are new to the show, I will open the telephone lines and I'll announce the telephone number. And we invite you to call in and talk with Dr. Agnew, ask your question, make your comment, and, uh, you know, just be a part of uh, the conversation. And we hope you'll do that. All right, we're going to step away for a break, and uh, we'll return right after this. Music used here at the Kevin Smith Show is from. And welcome back to the Kevin Smith Show. Um, Dr. Brooks Agnew is not a stranger to our audience. Uh, he's a friend of this show. He's a, he's my friend. He's a friend of this show. Uh, many of you have had personal contact with him through email. Uh, loads of you have read his best-selling books. Uh, and, and the list really just kind of goes on and on. Everybody knows Brooks Agnew, and uh, we are absolutely delighted to have him back with us tonight. And uh, so, uh, Dr. Agnew, welcome back. We're glad to have you. Thanks so much, Gavin. I don't know if everybody knows me, but... Maybe two or three more will get to know me through your your program tonight. We're getting there. Yeah, well, everybody that listens to this show, I'm I'm sure they know who you are. Uh, absolutely sure of that. But uh, okay, now uh, there there was a big, big, huge buildup towards December the twenty first, twenty twelve. There were a lot of DVDs that were produced. One of them was the Horizon Project. Um, there were movies produced, one of them called 2012, uh, lots of seminars, conferences, and loads and loads of survival supplies sold, um, which I don't necessarily think that's a bad idea. I think people ought to have survival supplies uh, on hand for any kind of a disaster. But um, all of that and um, uh, what happened? Well, that's a good question. A lot of people ask me over the years, uh, is this really going to happen? I mean, do the, would the Maya, uh, know as they're building their edifices and writing their calendar and figuring out all their math and, uh, King Pakal putting on his tomb lid that Earth was going to line up with the, uh, rift in the Milky Way 1500 years in the future? Why, why would they make, you know, such preparations for a generation that, you know, we, we don't even care about our own kids and grandkids, let alone a generation 1500 years in the future. Why would they do this? Why did the, uh, why did the Egyptians align their edifices toward the stars? Why, um, uh, was Stonehenge built? All of these ancient mysteries, not looking for their day, but looking for our day. Why were they built? Why was so much gross national product spent to get us aware of what's going to happen? And what, we discovered in the 2,000 pages that we wrote in the Arc of Millions of Years series is that they realized early on that we are they. In other words, 
their souls come back to earth over and over and over again and they were really trying to leave a reminder for them when they awaken in this generation in 21 uh, the 21st century to get ready for this stellar alignment they knew that strange forces and frequencies and charged particles and and gravities and even you know the the consciousness that would be available now on this planet at this time in this region of of the procession of the equinoxes and they wanted to leave themselves a reminder to be prepared for it, to know what to do now so many people uh, uh, want to say well the predictions were all wrong well these were not predictions these were prophecies prophecies are different than predictions in the sense that they are conditional predictions that is to say in every instance whether it's in the Popol Vuh or the Bible or the Quran or the Sefer Yetzirah, or you know any of the Kabbalah writings that we used in our books, conditional predictions mean this is what's going to happen if you keep doing this, or if you don't do this. Well, as it turns out, I guess you and I, we did our job. We informed tens of millions of people around the world and they became aware and awakened to these forces they began to think about them pray about them meditate about them and that combined consciousness that move that awakeness that awareness shifted the planet and the universe and we averted disaster okay now let me you know i like to play the devil's advocate so let me do that i see two other possibilities and let me ask you uh, uh, to comment on them. Possibility number one is that it's not all these people that woke up and paid attention, but it's all the folks like me who said, you know what, I don't think anything's going to happen. We're the ones that made it not happen. That's oh, one, see, one possibility. You, you manifested a non-event. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, well, I do some amazing things sometimes. But, uh, okay, and the the second thing is, there wasn't anything on the menu to start with. Well, that could be too, and and, and it's possible that everything is fabricated by, uh, you know, one person piling on to another person. What was it, 1958, I guess, Pakal's tomb lid was dug up, and Jose Arguez was there that, that year mm-hmm. and was introduced to that, and he was the one that originated the entire 2012 alignment phenomenon. He's the guy that started it way back Mm -hmm. 64 years ago, uh, or or 54 years ago. He's the guy that got it started. I interviewed him on my program several years ago, and, you know, I'll be honest with you, when we wrote our books in 2005, or we, we wrote them in 2004, they were published in 2005, Nobody was writing about 2012. I mean, there was maybe two or three books on the shelf at, at, at uh, Barnes & Noble. Now there's probably 200 titles out there on 2012. So it, there was uh, and, a lot. And, and going at a really cheap price now, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true, except that our 2,000 pages did not, you know, say, if this doesn't happen in 2012, we're full of malarkey. What we did is stated what the ancients stated. We aligned up all these ancient uh, writings. And some of them couldn't even be written about until 2004 because the works weren't translated into English. So they were just in English in 2004. So 
we, we really did a good job of cataloging these and, and, and making almost an encyclopedia out of them in a 2,000-page in a nonfiction work. So, you know, these books are timeless. If you really want to know what happened, why they were uh, aligning themselves the way they were, then then those are the books to read. Now, I'm not saying that there wasn't a lot of doom and gloom, and there was. And the second half of Volume 3, which is there are four books in the series, we had to, you know, do a control-alt-delete. We, we had to write 50 pages in the last part of Volume 3 to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, everything is not going to end. This is a grand awakening, a grand combining of separate human sovereign beings into one, you know, living mind. And it's a great possibility for peace that we can literally walk away from Armageddon. And I think we can do that, even though there are some world leaders that are very dedicated to uh, that kind of rhetoric. Uh, I just thought of a, a fourth possibility. Okay? Okay. Quite serious, this one. And that is that uh, actually... Everything happened that was supposed to happen. Nothing happened that was not supposed to happen, except that there were a lot of people who jumped in on the bandwagon uh, about uh, the Mayan prophecies and put their own spin and interpretation on it, so they could publish their own book uh, and become the you know a seminar speaker, a conference speaker. Uh, and uh, they cashed in. Uh, well, what what yeah, about that? I, oh, I totally agree with that. I was at those conferences. I mean, while I'm up there, you know, showing my slides where I traveled around the world and made my own record, uh, there were other people who had never traveled beyond their living room and were literally just grabbing snapshots off the Internet and using their charisma or whatever good looks they had and they went out and hit the uh, campaign trail as well the difference between them and some of the real researchers that were out there is we all have real jobs and 2012 was their job yeah well uh, you know I did not do an I told you so show on December the 21st and I'm not going to do one now um, but I, I do think before this thing passes entirely into obscurity, which it will pretty quickly, uh, there's a lot of a lot of people out there that wrote books that are sweeping things under the carpet now. Oh no, they'll but, figure uh, out something else. Uh, believe yeah. me, they'll be like these people that predicted the world was going to end in October. And then it didn't end, and they said, oh, listen, I made a, a slight miscalculation. It's actually November. Please send more money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so, But this is, not, this is not an I told you so. But I think it does serve as a good reminder for all of us that uh, we don't need to take things with a grain of salt when people are interpreting, they're putting their spin and interpretation on things. We don't need to take it with a grain of salt. You need to go get one of those salt licks that cattle use, big cube of salt, and take it with a huge cube of salt. Uh, because interpretations, 
are uh, lots of times, you know, it's based on emotion, sometimes based on hormones, seriously. Uh, sometimes it's, it's based on misunderstanding of the actual translations. Uh, and sometimes it's just based on fraud and fakery. Uh, once in a while, you get someone with a real straight, true interpretation of things. But uh, take it with a big cube of salt. Um, so what were you really personally expecting to happen December 21st, 2012? Let's peek behind the curtain. What's, what's really, uh, what was really on your mind for December 21st? I had a little different take on making the predictions than my co-author did. My co-author did buy her bunker, and she did stock it with food and water, and she was in it on December 21st, I I have to say. You know, me, I was outside staring at the sun. I, I, don't have, I have no fear whatsoever about this, because although these, you know, cosmic alignments uh, do occur, uh, and they occur on a regular basis, although, you know, it's a couple of millennia, you know, the build-up to it isn't like turning a light on and off. If you're going to make a cosmic alignment like that, then the Earth and, and literally the solar system uh, is going to uh, resonate with whatever that energy is long before it gets there. Now, I know the solar system is you know, going through the, uh, the cosmos at something like 63 miles per second, and Earth is going around the sun at 18.5 miles per second. And this you know, is a pathway that's difficult to per, to predict, and it's difficult to say, well, we're going to ramp up to this energy, you know, a year in advance. But still, the numbers of earthquakes, uh, tidal resonances, uh, rogue waves, weather anomalies, we've had all that stuff. We've had a ramp up in earthquakes. We've had a ramp up in volcanoes. Mm -hmm. We've had a ramp up in planetary temperature, rogue waves, all kinds of different uh, things, even new species, you know, popping up out of out of nowhere. All of these things did happen, so it wasn't like it was a complete non-event. It just wasn't an extinction event. It was a, it was a an awakening, uh, and we haven't really passed through it completely yet. Yeah, I don't think it's over. Um, you know, I said for several years, uh, and you know, because you've been on the show with me uh, many times over the past several years. And I've said, you know, I think, you know, we're going to see an increase in the in the uh, number of earthquakes, or not just earthquakes, but cataclysms, uh, and uh, an uh, increase in the number and the frequency and the intensity, and then it will begin to subside. And I think if December the twenty first, twenty twelve, signals anything, it signals the beginning of the subsiding. Now, we may still have, you know, we may be in the tail end of the ramp up. But um, the foot, I think, is off the accelerator now. And, uh, you know, we will begin to uh, coast slower. I hope so. I hope it's not like a hurricane, you know, where you, you pass the first couple of windy bands and then the eye passes over you. And then it's those last few bands that really smack the crap out of you. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the back end of a hurricane is more dangerous. Well, that's what I've heard. Uh -huh. 
spits in some hurricane-stricken areas, including uh, Katrina. Uh, I, I I could tell you that uh, this has been the strangest solar uh, cycle that we've ever had. We've it's been asleep, and then it woke up, and then we've had you know this strange kind of frothing around the solar uh, sunspots that uh, we haven't seen before. Maybe it's because we have better instrumentation now. But we're now able to see filaments forming and snapping, and we're able to see these solar tsunamis as they build. And we're going to have a really, really front row seat when it comes to the new uh, pole shift on the sun when it happens in uh, about five and a half years. But uh, that being said, we have had a lot of coronal holes. We've had a lot of uh, sudden and very violent solar flares. Fortunately, they haven't been aimed at Earth. They've been aimed out, you know, elsewhere out in the, in the solar system. And uh, I gotta admit that the Earth is just a teeny tiny pinpoint of light, 93 million miles away from the Sun, and so it's a difficult thing to hit. Sort of like, you know, trying to hit a a fly with a 747. It can be done. Uh, there, there are a number of flies on the windshields of 747, so you know it can I, be done. So. <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I, I, I think we're still going to see cataclysms. We're going to see disasters. Uh, that's been going on my whole life. It's the frequency of them uh, and, and the number, the frequency and intensity that's been ramping up. And uh, I think we will very shortly, this is, I'm just guessing, but I think we will see it begin to subside and uh but it uh, i i think it will be as you described like the back end of a hurricane in that uh we're going to have some really rocky stuff happen to us some tough stuff before we get completely out of the hurricane i think so too we're we're you know the ocean is a great uh, sympathetic resonator with with vibrations in the universe i mean just look what the moon does to us Every single time the Earth rotates on its axis, the moon, you know, pulls this tidal gravity against the ocean, and that's what causes our tides. It may be responsible for life as we know it on this planet. But uh, it's, it also resonates with other frequencies, sort of like a, a cymatic response of a glass of water with, you know, sand in it or, or dust in it. You'll see patterns form in the ocean based on these other long-wave, high-amplitude frequencies that are, that are going through the solar system. Some of these are these long-wave gravitational waves that are coming from the center of the galaxy, which are particularly intense right now. Now, it could just be the wrong frequency for the ocean, and it could just you know ripple like pond water. On the other hand, if it does resonate and you get constructive interference waves, these giant rogue waves, and they should happen to turn into shore, then you, know, you could be talking about... Um, coastal tsunamis. Right. We have to step away for a break. And uh, we'll pick up there when we come back. Ladies and gentlemen, more with Brooks Agnew right after this. Welcome back to the Kevin Smith Show. My guest, Brooks Agnew. Uh, we had to stop you in mid-sentence, uh, Dr. Agnew, and uh, so I want to give you a chance to finish what you had started talking about. 
And uh, the mic is yours. Well, we were talking about uh, how the ocean of the Earth would would sympathetically resonate with frequencies that you know bombard the planet as we make our way through this band of of uh, more intense gravity that's put out by the what is assumed to be a a massive supermassive spinning black hole in the center of the galaxy. Um, this this resonance can build up in the form of uh, we call it constructive interference. It's when a sort of like when you're in a room and you're playing your stereo or you're listening to classical music, and a certain note in that music sounds way louder than any of the other sound that's coming out of the music. It's because that music has reached what we call a standing wave in the room. It's formed uh, a perfect sine wave or a perfect sound wave that bounces evenly off of both walls and makes it sound like it's increased in volume in the room. Same thing happens in water. Uh, normally, the waves in our oceans are caused by wind. They're caused by various vibrations of the crust. But these super resonant waves would mount on each other and and build on each other, and they would travel to the water between, oh, 300 to 400 miles an hour. When they reach shallow water, not the you know three or four thousand meters that they are in the deep oceans, but when they hit the continental shelves, or when they hit the very shallow water that's only say a hundred feet deep or so, right off the coast, then that swell will rise up out of the water. And we're we have seen evidence of these tsunamis somewhere between two and three hundred feet in in height, uh, striking shorelines around the world. We see what what are called muck vents, a marvelous work done by doctors Allen and Dillaire out of Cambridge University. Uh, years and years of paleobiology and paleobotany uh, in the mountains of the fjords uh, up in uh, Norway, Sweden, and Finland. And these muck vents are packed with a slurry of life that was living on the planet at the time these giant tsunamis struck that coast and these are not little ones these these went all the way up into the tops of the mountains and jammed these you know slurries of mud made of the crushed bones of woolly mammoths giant sharks humans all into these uh, vents well those vents have been excavated and the bones have been analyzed so we know that these giant waves have hit the planet before and uh, do you expect that that's in our future? Well, I don't know if I expect it to happen, but I'm saying the conditions that caused it to happen 25,000 years ago are present again. And maybe it won't happen. Maybe uh, those resonances will work parallel to the coast instead of perpendicular to the coasts. And uh, the rogue waves will simply, uh, you know, rock super tankers like they do couple times a month right now they won't turn toward the coasts but if they do turn toward the coast then then you're going to see a tsunami of that size are these type of waves that you're talking about the, these energy waves that result in uh, way huge waves in the ocean are these what are causing the phenomenon known as rogue waves well they are, they act like rogue waves rogue waves are uh, just random 
uh, resonances. Normally they occur uh, once or twice a quarter. Uh, lately, the last couple of years, they've been occurring about once a month, according to maritime reports that we've been able to get a hold of. Now, in deep water, these rogue waves are pretty harmless. They may go up to 90 feet high, but, uh, you know, in, they don't, they don't actually form a crest. It's just a giant swell. And although they have, you know, swamped unsuspecting ships, most of the ships that are, uh, really deep in the water, like loaded oil tankers, will run completely battened down. And when those waves go crashing over the hull, the hull stays intact and the boat just comes back to the surface and keeps going. But there there are videos out there of these rogue waves taking, you know, pleasure cruises, which are just big aluminum hulls floating on top of the water. They're not prepared at all for a wave like that. They sometimes they get, you know, turned sideways and the wave comes inside the ship you know, breaks up a bunch of furniture and injures people. So far, we haven't had a boat completely swamped at sea, but we have had videos come in in the last few months of these boats being turned sideways. So uh, none of them have sunk as a result? No, it's pretty rare because the the ship captains leave their hulls uh, battened. That is to say, they're airtight. They have the, on a regular basis, they have the hatches closed. So when the water comes in the boat, it just runs out the, the hallways and over the side of the, the hull and off into the sea again. The actual hull itself and the lower decks stay intact and keep displacing the water. Um, okay. You are uh, the team leader for an expedition that has been years in the making and is going to happen, I think, uh, fairly in the fairly near future, and it is an expedition to go look for a possible polar opening uh, into the inner Earth. And uh, for those who are new to this, let me tell you that Dr. Agnew has never said on this show that there is a polar opening or that there is any type of actual inner Earth uh, reality. But what he has said is, let's go see. Uh, you know, that's what science does. Uh, let's go see if it's there. Lots of people have written about it. Lots of people have presented cases. Uh, by cases, I mean uh, they've presented what they think is evidence. And uh, so uh, what he has said is, okay, well, it's the role of science to go see. And so we're going to go see. So you're going to be on this big ship, and you're going to be headed into uh, very icy conditions. Um, it is an icebreaker. Is it prepared to handle rogue waves? Well, that's a good question. It's a it's a 450 foot long, 23,000 ton, 75,000 horsepower boat. That that sounds big, but it's sort of like. If you've ever traveled to Europe or or into the Far East and flown in a 747, that's a big airplane. I mean, it's the biggest passenger aircraft that we have out there other than an Anatov-225, which is a Russian craft that's even bigger. But you don't think it's so big when the jet stream is tossing it around like a dry wheat leaf in a fall breeze. It doesn't feel that big. So when you're the only ship, within 500 miles in any direction and you're 
pushing through 10-story seas that have icebergs in them, it's not going to seem like that big of a ship. I can guarantee you that. But I think it can handle it. It's a former Russian military or Soviet military vessel. It is now run by the Russians. The Russians operate several of these big boats. They're they're world famous with their ability to uh, make about eight knots through ice and about twenty knots in open water. So they can uh, they can really push some water. And they have ice rated hulls, and they're the, really the only ships that sail above the 80th parallel. When is this expedition going to kick off? When's it going to take place? Going to take place the latter part of July of this year. For sure? Uh, it's on. I mean, we've got the contract in our hands with the, with the charter company. We're working with, well, we were working with a producer on Park Avenue, New York. That was, uh, that's an interesting story. We worked for two years with this company, moving up their deal chain, uh, you know, very patiently moving up and, the personnel that were handling our deal, our voyage, moved up the chain in that company. And just as we were ready to set the deposit for the ship sometime in late October of last year, the entire company disappeared. I mean, the building's still there. The Park Avenue dress is still there. All the furniture's still there. The lights are still on. But there's nobody there. Just coffee cups sitting on the desk. No one answers the phone. No one answers the emails. Everybody is gone. Well, now, there you go. See, that, that's a mystery that we would be interested in. So, okay, let's, let's talk about that. What happened? Did they, uh, they get rounded up and put in some type of camp? Did they get, uh, transported or, or beamed up on December 21st, 2012? What happened to them? Oh, no, I, it was, uh, sometime in late November. It was about, we, we had been in regular communication for a couple of years, and the uh, woman that was uh, interested in our project a, a couple of years ago had moved up to vice president, and so our project was moving up with her. And the company was doing well. I mean, they're, you can go to their website. It's antiseptic as can be. Uh, no bad news out there about them at all. And just all of a sudden, after two years, no phone calls, no emails returned nothing and it's been months since we've been trying to reach them so uh, i put it on facebook i said look i don't don't know what to do guys and i somebody wrote back on facebook and said what's the address i put out the address and they drove over there and they said oh the office is there lights are on it's locked up tighter than a drum but there's laptops sitting on desks coffee cups sitting on desks there's just nobody there well Maybe uh, your project is responsible for their disappearance. What do you think? I would like to think so, but I don't think that's it. I think it probably has a way less nefarious thing, like maybe they went insolvent. But if you're going to go insolvent and you've been talking with somebody for a couple of years, you at least write your project and say, hey, it's not going to happen. You know, something's come up. But no communication at all, that's just not professional. It is mysterious, isn't it? It's mysterious. Have you you do have some of the uh, the the full proper names of some of these people? Oh, sure. Yeah, I've got their email addresses, phone numbers. I know what they look like. Yeah, uh, uh, it's strange. It was strange. Mm-hmm. It made me take a double take. After all the years, I've been working on this team since uh, August of two thousand six. 
and I've never had to take a double take. When Stephen Curry died, uh, you know, we just thought, well, you know, it was it was rapid. I talked to him in November. He was dead in July of rapid onset brain cancer. I've never seen anything like it. No one I know has ever seen anything like that. But we didn't slow down. It didn't scare us in any way. Uh, we just kept pushing forward. This is the first time I really had to sit down and say, hmm, you know, maybe... Uh, Maybe we need to think of something else to do. But um, I'm not the kind of person that, that is shaken up easily. And until somebody says cease and desist, we're going to carry on business as usual. Yeah, and it it would matter who says cease and desist too, wouldn't it? Sure, sure it would. Yeah. Um, so you're going to go take a look and see if there's a hole in the top of the earth. Um let's peek behind the curtain once again. What does Brooks Agnew actually think you're going to discover there? Well, you know, you've, you've said I'm a scientist and I am. I'm, I'm, I'm not a skeptic. I'm a scientist to the core. I, I don't believe any of this. If I did, I couldn't be scientific about it. But I do take in all of the queries that go with the hypothesis. And if you've got a hypothesis, you've made a statement, now you want to craft an experiment to prove or disprove that hypothesis. Now, I have to admit, a lot of people in my science just just craft the experiment to prove their idea. And they don't take in any data that would argue with what their hypothesis is. I'm not that way. I, I wouldn't be the least disappointed if all we saw were whales and ice. Okay, we have to take a break. We'll come back. After this break, we'll be back. Welcome back to the Kevin Smith Show, and my guest this evening, Dr. Brooks Agnew. Uh, Dr. Agnew, as we went away uh, for the break, you were saying that, uh, you know, if you, if you get up there and you see nothing but ice and whales, you're not going to be the least bit disappointed. All right, I want to set a different scenario for you. You're chugging along through the ice. And uh, because it's an icebreaker, and it's a nuclear-powered icebreaker, am I right? Yes, that's correct. All right, so it's got a lot of power, and and it's uh, uh, it's it's certified and rated to to go do this. So you're chugging along and uh, breaking up ice and making some headway, and suddenly you have an Admiral Bird experience. And that is, something takes control of the ship, lifts it up on the ice, and uh, you start scooting along uh, out on the surface of the ice, and uh, then uh, you are very gently lowered into a hole in the uh, top of the planet, and you have a meeting with this uh, race of people and their their master, their ruler or whatever, the the head guy, 
Um, if if that happens, you're you're a scientist, so let's go behind the curtain. If that happens, so what is Brooks Agnew going to do after that? Well, I guess it depends on what we're able to do while this event is taking place. I mean, I could tell you what I'm going to be doing is ordering 124 people plus the scientific crew of the ship to be taking samples, pictures. We're going to be gathering as much hard evidence as we can, and hopefully my IT guys are good enough that they can keep that satellite link connected till we go beneath the surface, I guess, uh, so that we're streaming live to the U.S. continent and the U.K. what's going on uh, while this is happening. Maybe 40 million people will get to see it with us. The idea is that we don't come back and have an Admiral Byrd moment. Hey, I flew over green areas. Oh, really? So where are the pictures? Where's the grass? Show me a leaf. Show me a bone. Show me a wooden fork. Anything. If you can't show that, then it's just so much, you know, personal testimony, which is fine. It's fine. But scientists like personal testimony with data. That's even better. And then you come back and you have the data you have uh video and you have pictures and your personal testimonies and then the government or whoever trots out all of these geniuses that don't know their butt from the hole in the ground and uh they start with all the well you see right here look at this video this is this is cgi this is this has been hoaxed and all that. And, and uh, you know, for the masses of sheeple out there, it'll be, oh, okay, just another bunch of crazy guys. So then what do you do? Well, for me, anyway, and some of the, some of the crew as well. Now, they don't all feel this way. i gotta got to tell you, some of them are quite passionate about this, and they fully intend on having an experience just like you just mentioned. But for many of us, this is like the ultimate mythbuster, nothing more. The fact that we can go there and say this myth, which has been around for well over 500 years in modern times and anciently has been talked about in Tibetan and Egyptian and Maya and Sumerian uh, histories, that, that this really does exist, that we really have data to prove it. We really have something hard evidence to, to, to back it up. For us... It is a challenge to prove our case. It's a, it's a challenge to make that case, but not from a standpoint that, you know, this is uh, a dimensional gateway to another dimension or that, that, uh, this is a massive enlightenment experience for the human race, which it may be. But we're going to try and approach this from a Mythbuster point of view, not to steal the name of this show, but, we're going to try to say this is a myth that's been alive for several thousand years and now we found evidence that it really does exist. And maybe it'll be the only expedition that's ever done to this area because this is massively expensive, Kevin. i got to tell you, it's, it's as massive as starting up a major corporation for one single you know, trip of 15 days to gather information. But for us... It's like going to Mars. It's you might as well be going to Mars or the Moon or Venus. No one's ever been here before. This is mm-hmm. just the side of accessibility for our planet. Okay. Um, 
Now, uh, since I am responsible for doomsday not happening by <laughs> thinking it, it wouldn't happen, uh, would you like for me to think that, uh, hey, there is an inner earth and you guys are going to find it? I, I can arrange that for you, you know. Arrange that for us, Kevin, and okay. uh, I'll put it in the business. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't I wish I had those powers. Um, if I did have those powers, there would be no sheeple tomorrow. I wouldn't get rid of the people, but I would clear their minds, and they would wake up in the morning thinking, oh, my God, what world am I in? <laughs> I tell you, I, I wake up every day just about thinking that. I look at the at the news. I try not to look at it, but what can you do, you know, when you're walking by and you... You, you get these alerts on your phone and people email you and send you tweets and you, you turn on any news channel, it's the same film running over and over and over again. I don't know what planet we live on anymore. I have no idea what these leaders are doing or what they're thinking. Well, I have a solution for it. Who gives a rat's ass? <laughs> these people do nothing but cost you. They do nothing but uh, they cost money. They cost lives. Um, and then uh, they program people's minds to go out and reelect them to cost them more money and more lives. And so, who gives a rat's rear on that? I, you know, I don't have a cell phone. I gave that up for sanity, and um, so I don't get messages on my cell phone. And uh, whenever people uh, send me email about all that stuff that's going on in, in Washington or in London or in in Sydney or uh, wherever, you know, all the politicians all over the world, and they're doing this and they're doing that. I, I hit the delete button. I don't even read it uh, because I already know the outcome of that. Uh, just just think of sociopath in control, and you got the outcome. And, uh, you know, so I, I just move on with life and uh, sanity and... and uh, you know, uh, sometimes people say, you, you, you mean you didn't hear about this? You didn't hear about that? Mm. I read the well, headlines because you sent them to me in the emails, but other than headlines, no, I don't. I am zero political. Zero. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I went through life, most of my life, that way. In fact, I'll tell you how I got involved in radio. I was... I was in uh, living in eastern Tennessee, and there was a small AM radio station that had a, a small, ignominious morning show, 6 to 8 a.m. in the morning. And uh, I moved there, and I had uh, four kids, four young kids. And the way their ages were spread out, I had a kid in every school in the county. <laughs> so I became integrally involved with, you know, parent-teacher organizations and going to different meetings with the, the school board and just just to see what was going on just to be involved you know find out what my kids were doing i was blown away at at the stuff that what that the school board was considering teaching our kids and um i also was blown away with all the money that the county and the city were going through and we weren't getting any results except the people on the school board were and the people on the city council were oh their properties were getting major developments next to them, jacking up the value of their pride. And I thought to myself, gee, this is just like Washington, right yeah. here in this town. So 
uh, I started getting involved, and I realized that uh, that little town had a uh, a citizen to representative ratio of about fifty eight hundred to one. And I did some research in the state of Tennessee. The average is about 2,500 to one. So we were well over twice the average, which meant we weren't represented in our own city council. So uh, I got involved and I put out a petition and got involved in the morning radio uh, broadcast. And I wrote a resolution to add a fifth city council member at large, which would bring the city into state ratios. Well, as soon as that passed, the mayor was unseated, two of the city council members were unseated, and literally tens of millions of dollars were released in the county and the city to start doing some good. They hadn't built a school in 25 years in that county. So it was, it just, it, everything just boomed after that. So I stayed on the radio for another couple of years, and we built that little radio program to a listening audience of 100,000 people, which is pretty good for 10,000 watts. All right, we have to step away from break, and uh, we'll return right after this. Welcome back to the Kevin Smith Show and my guest this evening, Dr. Brooks Agnew. For those of you who are just now joining us in this second hour, welcome aboard. I'm delighted you're here, and I think you will be too. Uh, you do have my most uh, sincere, deepest sympathy for uh, whatever it is that kept you away from the first hour. And my best wishes, hopes, and prayers that you never, ever suffer that trauma again. Um, we've been talking about, we started off, if you missed the first hour, well, what you need to do is be a member so you can watch this as the latest show, because we put it up on the website, so you'll still be able to catch it. Uh, but we talked about uh, December the 21st, 2012, Doomsday, and I asked Dr. Agnew, okay, so what happened? And um, then we moved from that to the expedition that he is the team leader of, uh, an expedition to see if, in fact, there is an entrance into an inner earth up at the North Pole. And we've been talking about that a bit. I, I have a question or two about that, and then we're going to open up the telephone lines. Um, Dr. Agnew, why, I mean, with all these satellites and everything, why can't we just aim a satellite at... Uh, the, the North Pole and um, snap a picture and publish a, uh, the picture and we can see whether there's, you know, an opening. Why, why can't we do that? Well, that's a good question. And we've been asking that question for a lot of years. And we have looked at a lot of photographs of that region. Most of the photographs are oblique, that is to say, not straight overhead, but, but at an angle. And the area is always covered with clouds. So we can't really actually see to the ocean level. The other reason is that in 2006, the NOAA and UMITSAT, these are 
the North American and the European organizations that cover all the kinds of weather uh, photography, weather satellites, these are the satellites that you get all of the mapping information from as well. Um, that uh, regulation, which was put out by those two organizations, forbids the, the public of accessing uh, any of the photographs above, above the 60th parallel. Why? Well, it, the, the actual uh, statute says that it forbids access, public access to real-time data uh, in times of conflict or war. And as far as I know, we've been in conflict or war since 2001. So, actually, maybe 1991. So, uh, no access to uh, polar satellite photographic data. Everything that Google Earth publishes above the 60th parallel is animated. None of it is real. None of it. Correct. Okay. Um, I was going to say with the cloud issue, they certainly have satellites with equipment that can see through clouds, can sense through clouds, and know what is down there. Um, Public can't access it. Yeah, public cannot access it. Okay, so... How is it, if you can't look at it from the air, how is it that you can go there in a boat? Well, it's quite a bit different. You know, we, we thought about chartering uh, an airplane. Uh, we uh, talked to a company that charters a 727. You're my age, so you remember the 727s. It's a, mm-hmm. a Boeing aircraft with three jet engines on the fuselage. Uh, and they won't fly any lower than 25,000 feet over this area. Then we talked to a turboprop, uh, a charter plane that can carry eight people, and uh, they won't fly any lower than 17,000 feet. We need to do like Admiral Byrd did and fly down around 5,000 feet, about the altitude of average Cessna would fly at. And we can't find anybody that will fly over that area at that altitude. Evidently, the jet stream does some crazy things up in this area, and we're talking a, a stream of air that can move up to 160 miles an hour at that altitude. And it's rather unpredictable. Those of you that have flown uh, up into the Arctic Circle to go to Europe or to go to the Far East know what I'm talking about. The wind will just throw that plane around like a, like a dry leaf in an autumn breeze. And they say that at that altitude, your first mistake is your last. At 5,000 feet. That's right. Mm-hmm. There's there's no place to land. There's no rescue. You're talking ten story seas, seventy eighty mile an hour winds in freezing water. It's just not done. Well, given that set of parameters, I can understand why they don't. I, I can, um, and uh, you know, I I was uh, in a private aircraft and actually was flying the aircraft and uh, my friend was with me and uh, he's a pilot and we were leaving Dallas headed over to Louisiana we'd been to Dallas for some business Uh and uh, we were flying back to Louisiana Um, first the uh, flight control 
uh, told us to take off too soon. And mm. uh, the reason I say that is a, a cargo jet had just taken off in front of us. And uh, at about 100 feet off the ground, or maybe less, uh, we hit the uh, the vortex out of the jets. And it tilted that plane. <laughs> I mean, it tilted it severely. And uh, it was a bit of a struggle uh, to climb out of that in time. Uh, at 100 feet, you don't have much time to do that. But then... Uh, we got a tailwind that was pushing us along toward uh, Louisiana, and uh, we were, and a lot of people don't know this, but uh, the uh, flights in north Louisiana were controlled out of Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. Uh, and so the flight controller... Uh, contacted us on the radio and he said say again what type of plane you're in so we told him and we asked why and he said well you need to descend and he gave us an altitude and uh, the reason was that with the tailwind we were exceeding the safe rating for that plane that's right that's right you're allowed to go 200 knots ground speed and if you're exceeding 200 knots ground speed, you're exceeding the safe rating of that plane. That's right. Mm -hmm. And so we had to d descend to get out of that stream. And uh, uh, we were having a good time, though. I, <laughs> we, were, we, were, we were making time. <laughs> yeah, that's always fun. I, I've only flown VFR, which is visual flight rating. Uh, I sometimes call it IFR, which means I fly roads. <laughs> <laughs> I used to fly from Morris down to Nashville, which is just straight down I-40 west, you know. Just keep I-40 under you and, you, and you make it to Nashville Airport. Uh, but occasionally there are clouds, especially right before where it was called Monterey, which is kind of a high plateau with some mountains and it traps some clouds. Well... The law says, the FAA says, you have to fly uh, no more than 10 minutes from view of the ground. So at 10 minutes, if you've lost sight of the ground over clouds, you have to turn around and go back. Mm -hmm. But I knew where I was. I was already triangulated. It was a bright, sunny day. I was flying at 5,500 feet over the clouds. And I knew that in about four minutes, I was going to clear the Monterey Ridge. It was going to be clear all the way to Nashville. There was no way I was turning around. So I just stayed on course, and sure enough, I popped right, right over, you know, I-40 right on target. But I actually violated FAA rules by, by flying three minutes and, further. And here you are confessing that right on uh, extremely public uh, radio. I could say I caught a glimpse of it out my corner of my eye, which mm. reset to ten minutes, and I knew where I was. So yeah, yeah. I went gut running. <laughs> All right, we're going to open up the telephone lines and invite you to join the conversation. If you would like to ask Dr. Agnew, well, you can ask him anything you want to ask him. Um, and uh, But if you specifically you want to ask him about December the 21st, 2012, or if you want to talk about this expedition to uh, try and discover an opening into the inner earth, uh, well, here's your opportunity. I mean, that expedition is something we've been talking about for a number of years, 
and uh, you now have the opportunity to get uh, you know firsthand update on that. Okay, the telephone number is 623-444-5889, 623-444-5889. If you are in the USA or Canada, please use that telephone number. If you are outside the USA or Canada, you may use that number, but on the other hand, you can use our flash message option, which is on our website. Just go to the website, kevinsmithshow.com, and scroll down, and uh, you will see the picture about tonight's show. Well, right above that picture is a link that says Flash Message. Listen carefully to what I'm telling you. That's for people who are not in the USA and not in Canada. Uh, and the reason for that is we realize that international long-distance calls can be expensive. So you can call us. On the other hand, you can uh, use the flash message option. All right? Uh, and again, it's 623-444-5889. For those of you who are watching, the telephone number is on your screen. And uh, for those who are listening, uh, if you forget the telephone number, go to my website, kevinsmithshow.com, and right above that picture, right above that link that says flash message, you'll see the telephone number there as well. All right, uh, back to the expedition. How many people are going on this expedition? The ship uh, will hold 124, and uh, we're actually getting ready to launch a Kickstarter project if we can get all the paperwork done. It's been it's been a long time in the making. Uh, we're going to give away uh, 20 of those spaces uh, for the right donation under that Kickstarter program, which will be about uh, less than half of what those seats normally would cost. Other than that, the uh, 104 remaining seats will be taken up by scientists, filmmakers, managers, uh, historians, you know, people that have been involved in this project for a lot of years. So... That's how many can go. Then there's uh, a crew of 150 on the ship, and several of those are scientists as well. Well, you ought to invite Richard Branson to go and see if he'll underwrite it. Yeah, we uh, we actually went to the Virgin Group about uh, three years ago, and we never made it past the application stage because the first paragraph on the first page said if you reveal your project to us it belongs to us and you're out so we said well I think we'll just not accept the help so we walked out well I can't imagine you not wanting to just uh, turn it over uh, lock stock and barrel that's uh, that's a bit selfish of you isn't it yeah, maybe, but, you know, the crew has been working on this for a lot of years, some of them 10 years on this project. I've been involved for six years. It just didn't seem fair that the guy with the money comes in at the very end and can make it as sensational as he wants to and all about him. It just it just didn't feel right to us, so we, we left. So you're having to raise money for this expedition entirely... Um, grassroots then right oh absolutely yeah i've put in 
eh, you know, 40 or so over the years. And, uh, we've raised about $9,000 in donations. Not very much for a two and a half million dollar venture. And we thought we had this, uh, this producer out of New York, which does multi-million dollar films all the time. And they really liked this idea. They liked the upside. They liked the pre-marketing that we'd done. We shot a 31 minute pilot film, which has sold pretty well. Uh, we took uh, first place in the Jeans of Galileo contest and Nippon Television Network, network with it. We've, we've done a really good job making the world aware of the North Pole Inner Earth Expedition. So, and we've been on Discovery Channel, History Channel, Nat Geo Channel. So we've done a lot of work over the years and, and it's, uh, hopefully will allow us to, despite the fact that this, this, uh, producer disappeared, I mean just flat out disappeared. We should be able to raise the money and go anyway. Uh, well, with this producer, I mean, do you you already have like contracts? Well, we were on the deal board. I'll put it that way. We were we were working our way up to. They were supposed to make the deposit on the ship, which is about seven hundred thousand dollars, the first of November. Uh, the end of October, they were nowhere to be found. So, have you already put the deposit on the ship? No. We have the contract in our hands, but we haven't put the deposit on it. How much is that? The deposit's 700000 The total charter is $2.4 million. Are you pretty confident that you're going to raise the, the, the $2.4 million? Yeah, we figure based on, you know, several appearances we've had on international radio, Webcast like this one and television. Oh, no, 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 no. This is not a webcast. This is international radio, AM, FM, shortwave. But we are on the web as well. well there we are. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're on the best shows and best programs and best conference tours in the world. And we probably have reached over 40 million people with this, this project. Mm -hmm. All it would take is, you know, a dime from each one of them and we'd have the money to do what we need to do. Well, I certainly hope that uh, you're able to, to raise that amount of money. That's a lot of money, though. Well, it is a lot of money. People think, oh, well, that's not very much money. No, it's a lot of money. It's That's as much money as Terminator spent on the first Terminator. You know, that's it's a lot of money. All right. Now, what happens if, I mean, you've got this contract. What happens if you're not able to raise the money? You get sued by these people? No. Then the ship just doesn't leave. It's the last charter of the year. It's actually the the fifth trip that they would make. They don't normally make a fifth trip, but we are buying uh, 15 days of time after they get back from the last polar trip. Okay. So it's no loss to them. They wouldn't make a fifth trip normally anyway. We're just chartering that time. Okay. It would just, it's kind of like working overtime for them. Exactly. Uh, and the whole crew is Russian? Yeah. Well, it is mostly Russian. Some of them are European, uh, and some of them are American. There are, uh, uh, oceanographers. There are weather people on the ship. There is all kinds of experts on the ship that, that normally make that trip a very enjoyable uh, polar, you know, tourist trip for people that want to go to the North Pole and have a few pictures taken. 
Okay. Do you, do you speak Russian? <laughs> no. I, I have some people on the crew that do speak Russian. I've tried to learn it. I have a mm-hmm. propensity for languages. Just not that one. Uh, I, it's been a long time, uh, and I only ever learned it uh, minimally. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, I, I didn't find it to be all that difficult, really. Um, because it's, <laughs> can't make the sounds. Well, it does take some practice, yeah, to make, to, to pronounce some of the sounds. Um, but you know something, um, one of the cool things about Russian, same with all of the Slavic languages that use the Cyrillic alphabet, is when you see a letter, it always is pronounced exactly that same way. There's never a time when it's pronounced differently. Mm, cool. um, like with our letter C, uh, sometimes uh, we pronounce that as like an S, and sometimes we pronounce it like K, like a K. Right. Uh, but you don't have that in the Slavic languages uh, with the Cyrillic alphabet. Every time you see a letter, it's pronounced exactly the same way. Um, so you have people on your team that do speak Russian. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have people who speak Russian, and uh, a couple of them actually, well, one of them comes from a uh, former employee with the Russian Railroad. So this is a this is a very big, major company in, in Russia. Uh-huh. But they they were an officer in the Russian railroad. I'm sorry, in the Soviet railroad, and then worked for a number of years in the Russian railroad, and so has a good knowledge of the language and the customs. Do you think that uh, how how shall I say this? These guys that that are the crew of the Russian ship. Um, let's say that as you approach the uh, polar opening, let's say it's there, okay? It's there. We're going to assume that it is there. Let's say things start to be very strange. Uh, compasses start to spin. Uh, radar equipment stops functioning. Uh, maybe sonar stops functioning. GPS goes haywire. Uh do you think these folks would be of a frame of mind to, hey, we got to get the heck out of here? Or are well, they going to stick it, it out? This is a time of year, late July, early August is a time of year when the sun is up above the horizon all day. It, it just simply goes around you. Uh, in early August, it, it, it may dip just below the horizon, but it'd be like, uh, you know, dawn. Uh, still, you'd be able to read a newspaper by it. It's literally, you know, the sun never sets. It just goes around you 360 degrees. So, based on, you know, the electronic time or uh, just a, the time on your watch and the position of the sun, you'll be able to know where you are. It's when the sun disappears, that's when you really have to go by the stars. And if you can't see the stars, then yeah, but uh, if all the equipment is beginning to go haywire, do you think these guys would say, you know what, we've had enough, we're out of here, we're turning this ship around? 
Are they going to stick it out? I think they will. You know, they're really excited about it. They uh, they love the expedition. They love the idea of the film being made. They love the idea of being part of it. Uh, they're they're excited about. It. They're positive about it. They they really want to do it. Uh, but now the deal with the film being made may not be. I mean that that may not that may be a no go if if your uh, production company doesn't get back from Zeta Reticuli or wherever they went. Hey, there are lots of producers out there, lots of producers. You know, just because something is dangerous, uh, just because something is risky, just because it's rare and it's never been done before, I I think that's the kind of deal that some producers you know spend their whole lifetime looking for. So it's just a matter of making the pitch to the right group. Well, we have a number of producers that listen to and or watch this show, so who knows? You may get a phone call. I hope so. Um, with well, uh, if, if you're out there and you're not afraid of going to you know the nethermost parts of the planet to see something no one has ever seen from sea level before, give us a call. Um, this area that you're going to will not be under ice, though, will it? It uh, that's kind of questionable. In 2007, it okay, opened up. Tell you what, we'll we'll have to get that answer when we get back. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back after this. Will you? Welcome back to the Kevin Smith Show and my guest this evening, Dr. Brooks Agnew. At the moment, we're talking about that expedition uh, to see if there is an entrance into an inner earth up at the North Pole uh, in in the Arctic, and uh, he is the team leader for that expedition. Uh, Dr. Agnew, as we went away for break, you were saying something, and we had to cut you off. Uh, do you want to finish that thought? Yeah, if you can give me the last five words of it. <laughs> Tell you what, why don't we do this? Maybe you'll think of it. Uh, okay. Let's go to the telephone and... Uh, Caller, you are live on the Kevin Smith Show. Your first name and from where are you calling? Oh, hang on, caller. Let's try it now. Your first name and from where are you calling? Kevin, this is Steve from Georgia. Steve, I'm an old guy and I didn't push all the buttons right. Uh, do I get forgiveness for that or uh, 40 lashes well, with Kevin, wet noodles? One old guy to another, uh, you don't just get forgiveness. You get empathy, sympathy, <laughs> and total understanding. <laughs> all right. Well, Steve, what is on your mind this evening? Well, I, I'm probably not going to help jog Dr. Agnew's memory as to what he was talking about with uh, with with his uh, expedition. Uh, uh, I, I hope it comes off, but uh, you know I do find the hollow earth idea plausible. What I, what I would like to see would be a land-based uh, expedition. Of course, a deal would have to be cut with the uh, Chinese government, I'm sure. 
uh, following uh, Dr. Uh, Ferdinand Ossendowski's uh, trail into the Gobi Desert, where um, you know he he recorded his his contact with uh, people that came up from the, the Hollow Earth. Uh, that w- that was I, I found that that very interesting when I was reading his account. Uh, that's not the reason I called in, though. Um, the point that the point that uh, Dr. Agnew made earlier about resonances hitting our oceans and uh, we having possible oceanic uh, disturbances out of it uh, <clears throat> causes me to think about a, a different ocean, not the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian, or the Arctic Ocean, but the human ocean. Uh, you know, we we carry around in us uh, something like 60%, uh, 0.9% saline, the same stuff the ocean's made of. And and all this saline, this, this ocean that we carry around in us, exists in our cells. It exists in the cerebral spinal fluid, in the uh, the uh, aqueous humor, in the eyeball. Uh, you know, we're, we're just full of water. Each of us is an individual ocean uh, made of the same stuff that these oceans are in. And, and uh, working in an emergency room the way I do, I kind of watch uh, what happens with people, you know, as uh, different effects come and go. Uh, you, see, you see trends. And, uh, and I, for one, will be watching what's going on with the type of population that we see in emergency rooms. And, um, and I think that's something that each individual out there, they don't have the equipment to watch what's going on in oceans, perhaps, but they can sure keep an eye on themselves, their own consciousness, the people around them. And, and it'll, I think it's going to be interesting to watch what happens to the human consciousness you know, as these, these waves continue to come on in. And, um, you know, I, I just thought I'd drop that on you guys. And uh, if you wanted to bat that around a little bit, uh, uh, go ahead and I'll, I'll get off the air and, uh, and, and uh, uh, give somebody else a chance to call in and let you guys bat it around if that's what you want to do. Well, Steve, uh, we will do that, but don't get off the air because I have a question based on what you just told us. But I'll get to that question in a moment. Uh, Dr. Agnew, uh, what about that, the, the human ocean? Well, I think that the human body, I call it a biological transducer. It's the, the, the physical thing in, from which we interpret our universe. But human consciousness is part of the environment inside this biological, biological transducer. We're not just animals. We're also animated beings inside this biological transducer. And the water that makes up the human body is not just moisture. It's, it's a, a complex uh, osmotic fluid that is very sensitive to energy. That is to say uh, cosmic radiation, radio waves, all kinds of things affect, and even thought waves. You know, if you're in, the, in in a surrounding with a bunch of sour people, it has an effect on you. When you're around a bunch of people experiencing joy, that's why we go to church and listen to music. We we get in those vibrations in that set of harmonies and melodies. They're all the same, by the way, and all church harmonies and melodies are all in the same range on that keyboard. They're designed to give you that sound resonation that gives you that feeling of peace, forgiveness, and sort of a reset function so you can face the next six days 
uh, before you come back and get refreshed again. So the human body is very, very sensitive to that. You're exactly right. We, we are affected by that. However, while you're paying attention to the inner ocean, I would still move away from the coast until further notice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Steve, are you still with us? Yeah, I'm still here. All right. Still- I, I got a question for you. Go ahead. You said that uh, you are able in the emergency room to see trends and uh, changes in people, uh, trends in the changes in people, uh, based on various uh, events and energies happening out there at large. So did you notice anything, any trend, as we entered into and then left December the 21st? Well, what I saw was more violence out there, um, uh, more assaults, more um, people people just not able to handle whatever whatever internal weather they were going through. Uh, they couldn't handle it, and and they expressed it in either you know some kind of rage event or uh, or. You know, some some kind of either destructive or self-destructive, because there was a lot of people coming through with uh, suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation attempts at uh, overdoses. Um, I watched a lot of that come through, and um, <clears throat> you know, it was kind of it was a little disconcerting, but not altogether surprising to me. Was it was it more than what you would normally see? Yeah. Yeah, we we have a we have a little behavioral med area in our emergency room, and uh, our hospital has its own um, psych area that's kind of located across town from us. And I saw a lot more. Our our little behavioral med area was overflowing, and we had to put patients other places as well. So I, I saw a lot of that. There's a lot of consciousness, you know, pe- people not handling what's going on inside them and uh, mm-hmm. and having self-destructive or destructive of others ways of coping with it and uh, <clears throat> you know that that was a little disconcerting you know animals do that if an animal becomes ill so you say you have a, a pet dog or a pet cat and this animal becomes ill uh, say with an ear, ear infection uh, you know, he can't tell you. He tries. He tries. He meows or he barks. He tries to tell you, but we're kind of dumb animals ourselves. We don't. I don't speak dog and I don't speak cat, so I don't understand what they're saying. But they try, and then their behavior changes, and it's it's like uh, they either they can't help it or they are acting out in order to get your attention that, hey, something is wrong here. Uh, so animals do this. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't think we are just animals, but there is a level at which we're part of the animal kingdom. And, uh, you know, I guess you know, people maybe don't know how to put it into words to express or explain where they can get help, and then they act out. 
Now, what I did notice, Kevin, too, I'm glad you brought up animals because I have a number of cats here. You know, I, I'm a cat person. i got cats in the yard, cats in the house. I found them getting a lot closer to, to me and to Lori. You know, the, the cats that uh, uh, they seem to enjoy spending more time with us. They, they spent more time on our laps, spent more time curled up in the bed sleeping when we slept. Uh, they, they seem to enjoy our contact more. They seem to need it more. And they were more expressive of affection. They spent more time rubbing up against us, patting us with their paws, you know, wanting to be petted and scratched behind the ear. You know, uh, I, I found that change in them. You know, they got a lot more affectionate and, and almost clingy. You know, that... Uh, uh, that was my cat change. doing that? Did your cat also do that, Brooks? I thought it was just my cat acting that way. I mean, just the last, I don't know, six months, the cat's just gotten, you know, very, it doesn't roam around anymore. It just hangs around and sits on the arm of the couch next to me and sits in my office chair when I'm not sitting in it, you know, just like he said. More clingy. Yeah. Okay, so now December the 21st has passed. Have either of you noticed the cat's behaviors returning to pre-December 21st normality? Well, not yet. Not yet, Kevin. In fact, uh, I'll go even further. There are a number of feral cats in the area here that um, that got a little braver and, and raccoons and possums that come up at night and uh, kind of share in the cat food. And, and they have gotten more fearless, you know. They, they approach us, and, and they don't mind if I'm sitting outside at night and they come up to eat the cat food. They don't stay away because I'm there, or I can move around and they don't scurry away. They just stay right there at the cat food, steady eating away, looking at me. You know, uh, they seem to enjoy... I think there, there must be something about the way the human transducer receives this energy and radiates it out that the animals enjoy that kind of a vibration. I, I think they actually like that. They seem to, seem to like it. And they're still acting that way. It, this hasn't changed. You know, this, this is still here. Okay, so let me throw this out for you two guys, and and I'd like to get both of you uh, to respond to this, um, and and we'll let Brooks respond first, and then you, Steve. Using what you just said about the wild animals, uh, less fear fearful, uh, are becoming fearless, um, and uh, just sort of you know, it's okay that you're there. First, do you think that that's as a result of any of the energies that we're supposed to be getting now because of the position of the earth? Mm. And secondly, is it that we are now giving off less of the frequencies that tell them we are dangerous to them? Or is it that their frequency has reached a point where it says, you know, I don't give a damn if he's dangerous. I can handle him. So, Brooks, you're first. Well, that is a really good question. Are we actually putting off more peaceful? I think what's happening is both are happening. Because if you look at, let's say, Chicago, when we've reached 500 homicides by gunfire this year, uh, that hasn't happened since the days of, you know, Valentine. 
that, uh, by the way, is in a city where it's illegal to have guns. Yeah, exactly. So these are gang members shooting each other up. This is this mm-hmm. is, you know, never happened before from the since the days of Al Capone, uh, and I don't even know how many how many people were killed in those days if it was five hundred. But on the other hand, the other extreme of it, sort of like the extreme summer and extreme winter we've been having. All right. Now, don't forget your thought this time, but we have to take a break. Steve, hang on. We'll be back, folks, right after this. Welcome back to the Kevin Smith Show and my guest, Dr. Brooks Agnew. We're on final approach. Just a few minutes left. We have an ongoing deep question that uh, we had asked, uh, that I had asked, and uh, Dr. Agnew was just about to answer, and then Steve on the telephone with us from Georgia is uh, going to address it as well. So, Dr. Agnew, uh, you're up first, and the thing is, uh, the behavior of these wild animals uh, is it because we are less threatening to them now or because they are braver now? Well, I think it may be a combination of both. But what I was talking about before we went to break is this dichotomy that seems to be happening in in the human population. Uh, the violent and the dark-hearted, shall we call them, lower vibrational people, are becoming extreme on their side, hence 500 homicides in Chicago this year. And the very peaceful, you know, empathetic, merciful, loving people are becoming more so on the other side. And I think that's what the animals are sensing. Uh, so that that's my take on it. It's It's just like we see in the weather. We're beginning to see... Well, I hate to give my books another plug, but what we call the Grand Division. This is where the two types of human beings that are on this planet become much more, uh, shall we say, light and dark. It becomes more black and white. It's not so much a melting pot. We're stepping on one side of the fence or the other side of the fence, and the line between us is going to become very clear. Steve, what do you think about uh, the way the animals are behaving? Are we less threatening to them, or are they more capable and know they are more capable of handling us? Well, Kevin, I think it's, uh, like, like Brooks said, I think it's a combination of things. Um, I think they, they're they able to perceive that some of us are less threatening to them. Uh, exactly. Let me say that... Um, the animals don't watch TV. The animals aren't exposed to the kind of neuro-linguistic programming that, um, that jams and destroys and distorts some of our neuroreceptors. You know, and um, uh, people, people who've had their neuroreceptors distorted and damaged by, by uh, the flicker rate of the... Uh, digital television that they watch all day after they get off work 
You know, th these people aren't able to adequately receive the kind of subtle energies that will energize those of us who don't participate in those activities. You know, those of us who don't allow ourselves to be exposed to that junk and don't allow ourselves to be led around by the nose, you know, we receive a different type of energy. We're able to, um, to, uh, uh, to transmit that energy. Once we've received it, it works its change in us, and then it moves out and down into the earth. Now, the animals and the plants around us, they're living things, too. They carry an ocean around in them, and they, too, are affected by the cosmic energy that's coming in, and, uh, and they don't get exposed to TV. You know, they get bombarded by the same uh, harp waves. They get uh, exposed to the same doggone chemtrails that we get exposed to, so they get harmed that way, but uh, they don't have the same neuro-linguistic programming that short-circuits their ability to, um, to receive the subtle energies the way uh, m much of the human race is. So I, I think that the animals are, their consciousness is shifting uh, just as ours is, uh, some of us. And, uh, and like Brooks says, um, you know, they're able, they're able to see which ones are dark and which ones are light, you know, which ones are actually participating in the uh, sociopathic agenda that's out there, who's benefiting from it, you know, who's, who's jumping on the bandwagon, and then, and then who's stepping aside from it and taking an entirely different energetic flow and becoming a different species almost. You know, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think he's exactly right. I think the human race is evolving for those beings that resonate with the energy that's coming through. Call, call it the voice of God, if that's what you want to call it. But if you don't resonate with it, it's not going to have any effect on you. You do resonate with it. It is, it is quite a peaceful, joyous feeling, I think. Yeah, and on the other hand... Uh, let me say this. Um, I don't think I'm any more dangerous than I ever was, but you know what? I was a guy who spent 20 years as a professional soldier. You know, I, I ran around carrying an M16 over one shoulder and a military aid bag, a medics, combat medics aid bag over the other shoulder. When I retired from the Army, I was through carrying guns. I didn't care if I, if I ever owned another weapon or even heard another gunshot. But um, lately, I find myself purchasing weapons and ammunition. And uh, I don't think I'm any more dangerous than I ever was. In fact, I think I'm more peaceful now than I ever was. But, um, but I find myself heading in that direction, too. So um, I, I just thought I'd throw that in. You know, it's so funny that Kevin and I were just talking about this earlier today. And I said... You know, Kevin, I haven't even thought about touching a firearm since 86, 87. And until now, I, I just yesterday had the, the thought I pulled up on eBay said, I wonder how much these pistols are. And I looked them up yesterday. I haven't looked up a gun in, in 25 years. No desire whatsoever. It's a very, very strange that you would say that. Well, uh, we're almost out of time. Let me say... Um, I uh, personally, you know, I'm kind of like Steve. I carried a gun every day for years and years and years as a cop.
And um, for me, it was it was like a carpenter carries a hammer. It was a tool of the trade I was in, and in that business, uh, you're very you're in very very risky circumstances often. And uh, I didn't mind carrying it. I'm not opposed to guns. But when I walked away from being a cop, after all those years, you know, I didn't want, I, I didn't get up in the morning and have to put on a vest anymore, a, 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 you know, a, a body armor vest. Uh, I didn't have to strap on a gun anymore. I didn't have to polish my badge. I didn't, I don't do any of that stuff. Uh, I, I don't have a gun. I don't want a gun. Uh, I'm not opposed to them uh, for people who know how to use them and and who are responsible i'm certainly not opposed to them having them and i think gun control means being able to hit what you're aiming at <laughs> and uh you know uh, that's that's the point uh to and and to know when and when not you know uh so uh, but I'm like Steve. I I just uh, that switch, you know. I, I I threw the switch and I said, you know, I just don't want to mess with carrying them anymore. Uh, no, I don't have to worry about keeping it in a safe place. I don't have to worry about cleaning it all the time, and uh, so forth. And I have been asked for both of you. Well, yeah, but what if somebody's shooting at you? And the answer is. Even if I have a gun, I'm going to get behind cover, right? So I'm still going to get behind cover, and when they have to reload, I'm going to touch them. And that's all it takes. I only need to touch them. If I touch them, it's over. And I still have my hands. So right. Don't forget, you know, Kevin's an expert in hand-to-hand combat, too. Yeah. Steve, thanks much for the call, buddy. Yes, excellent call. God bless you and Happy New Year, brother. All right, you too. All right, we are out of time. Dr. Brooks Agnew, thank you for being with us this evening. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, Two hours was uh, very quick. It was indeed. If you will, stay on the line with me for a moment. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's it uh, for this evening. Uh, Welcome to Boktoon 14. Welcome to 2013, and uh, Bakhtun 14, this will live on in the archives, and 400 years from now, 394.25 years from now, somebody can play this archive and hear Welcome to Bakhtun 14. My friends call me Steel Eye, my enemies do too. You can call me whatever you want to call me. Just keep coming back again and again and again. Until next time, so long everybody. 